uh, kids, so grade school, preschoolers, uh, if you're headed to Gospel Project, now's the time. Hope you have a great time together. Uh, as Tad prayed, we're starting a new series of messages this morning. We'll be in Psalm 1. So if you have uh, a Bible, please turn with me there to Psalm 1. If you don't, underneath the seat in front of you is uh, a Bible that looks like this, a blue Bible, and you can take that out and turn to page 254. That's where we'll be this morning. This summer, uh, for the next nine, ten weeks, Lord willing, we're going to be working our way through uh, several psalms. This morning when Micah, uh, my ten-year-old, heard we were going to do psalms, he leaned over and said, Dad, how long is that going to take? And he doesn't even sit in these yet, um, but we're not going to do all 150, so take comfort in that. Uh, We're going to jump around and uh, cover a number of different types of psalms this summer and see if we can learn together uh, from them. You'll be hearing from a variety of different uh, people from within the Church on Mill family. The Lord has continued to bless us with uh, men who are already pastoring uh, or who have a desire in the future to serve as pastors or elders. And so you'll get to hear from several of them. After I served uh, here five years, the church graciously began offering me four weeks of sabbatical a year. And so starting next Sunday, I'll be gone for a couple of weeks and going to be working on things for this fall uh, as well as the spring. So appreciate your prayers and thank you for graciously giving me some time for that. So Psalm 1 is uh, where we'll be this morning. Next week, uh, you'll be able to hear from Phil, who is one of our residents. And if you wanted to read ahead, he'll be covering Psalm 16. And all the other Psalms we'll be covering are listed on the website. But this morning we'll be in Psalm 1, so let's follow along together if you would. It says, blessed is the man, speaking of mankind, blessed is the man or woman who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the day of judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. In many ways, an analysis or study of history is the search for happiness. If we investigated every culture, what we'd find is there would be lots of differences, differences in the way people dressed, what they ate, how they made money, what they did to survive. But the common denominator that we would find is that all people All cultures have had a shared fundamental goal. That goal is to be happy. Those of us in the room who are from the West, not meaning the West of the United States, but Western culture in general, Westerners, we largely think of happiness as something that comes as a byproduct of autonomy. And so we look to our own self-expression 
no external constraints upon us as what will produce happiness. But on the other half of the world, and for those of you here from the eastern side of the world, that's not at all the way you think of happiness. If you've grown up, uh, developed in an eastern culture, then you most likely think of happiness as the fulfillment of shared familial obligation. And so rather than looking uh, inward at self-expression, your tendency would be to look outward to family and to fulfill life by being a good son or daughter, brother or sister, grandson or granddaughter. Those are dramatically different, aren't they? And yet the end is the same, the desire to be happy. The interesting thing about that is, while both dominant cultures would have some version of happiness, we would find that the search is still going. Because neither Western culture nor Eastern culture have been able to fulfill the desire for happiness in any sustained, lifelong way. But we find this morning in Psalm chapter 1 that this search for happiness could in fact be over. Because Psalm 1 teaches us what happiness actually is. It describes for us a happy person. And so we start this morning in our summer series through the Psalms by carefully considering what all the Psalms are for. You see, the book of Psalms is very different than the book of John. When John set out to write his gospel, he sat down and wrote his gospel. I went to school a long time to be able to have that kind of knowledge. The Psalms, though, weren't written that way. These were written by a variety of different authors over a much larger span of time and were only collected together after they were written. And so, very early on in the history of the Israelite people, they gathered these psalms together and understood this psalm to be the one that ought to go first. Why? Well, because it tells us what to do with all the rest of them. It tells us what their purpose is. It tells us how to pray, how to praise, and the mindset through which we are to come to God and His Word. Now, what's surprising about that is the first word. What is it? Blessed. Blessed is one of those churchy words we might say to each other when we ask, how are you? And if you're of a particular age, you might say, I'm blessed. But do we actually know what the word means? Or is it just one of those words we use? Well, friends, the word blessed means happy. The most fundamental basic meaning of what it means to be blessed is it means to be happy. So this book of Psalms, 150, that Mike is glad we're not going through all of them, this longest book in the whole Bible begins with the word happy. Does that surprise you? What does that say about God? 
Did you know that God cares about your happiness, about your contentedness, about your joy in Him? Well, brothers and sisters, He does. And He is wholly committed to His people being happy, joyful, and contented. Such that He gave us the book of Psalms. Without a doubt, the most influential preacher who's ever preached in the English language was a British man named Charles Spurgeon. And Spurgeon said of Psalm chapter 1, everyone is seeking happiness. If that is true, then everyone should read this psalm, for it directs us where happiness is found in its highest degree, in its purest form. So if you don't believe me, take Charles's word for it. Friends, Psalms, or the book of Psalms, has always been the songbook of the people of God. And as the songbook of the people of God, it has always directed us in our praying and our singing, both together and individually. And it begins with the word happy. Happy. When you think of God, do you think of a being committed to you being content and joyful, fulfilled, obedient, and happy? If not, then our hope and prayer for you will be over the summer as we look at these psalms together, that a different vision of God's character and God's intent for you, brother or sister, would be sown and would bear fruit, that you would come to see that God is, in fact, quite concerned that you find joy and contentedness in Him. Eugene Peterson said of this psalm, this text, meaning all the psalms, teach us to pray, but this one doesn't begin with prayer. We're not ready. We're too wrapped up in ourselves. We've been knocked around by the world. Psalm 1 is a pre-prayer getting us ready. What Peterson is saying is the function of this first psalm and the reason we're starting this series is to teach us how to praise, how to pray, in particular by showing us how to delight in God's Word, how to meditate upon it, and thereby how to become increasingly happy people. Now, the underlying principle here that might be easy for us to miss, but in fact is something we experience all the time, and you've been up, a few of you, several hours, a few of you are still waking up. I can see it in your faces. But you've already done the principle today. You have, in fact, already experienced it. The basic principle underlying this passage is that we become what we behold. We become what we behold. Or to say that a different way, whatever captures your gaze, whatever your mind most finds desirous, 
that will, in fact, determine the sum of your character. Maybe a simple illustration would be that we've all heard mothers say, you are what you eat. Friends, mom was right about that, science has discovered. But more importantly, you are spiritually what you gaze upon. This psalm is designed by God to help us look to the right thing. That through Christ giving us righteousness, we might then grow up in that righteousness shown to us in the Word of God. In an affluent, knowledge-based society like the United States of America, we have an unlimited access to things that can capture our attention. Sports, crafts, education, music, travel, history, attire, photography, cooking, on and on and on we can go. And the vast majority of us carry in our pockets or in our purses a mini-computer that is in fact like a leash drawing us again and again and again that we might be sucked into. Who said what about that? Who took that picture? And in which we form a caricature of what life is really like. Always being pushed more and more and more that our attention might be grabbed by an ever extending list of important things. It may be that most of us in the last seven days or 14 days or 21 days have, in fact, meditated more on our hobbies, on our appearance, on our work, than on what would actually produce lasting happiness. And so, far from mainly rebuking us for that, this psalm is designed to hold up a vision of a different kind of life, a life in which there is a contentedness found by delighting in God's Word, a Word that will truly produce happiness. Whatever captures your gaze shapes who you become. And so God says in this first psalm, be captivated by His Word. You could think of this psalm as the doorway into the joy of happy contentedness. And these six verses teach one simple idea. We could summarize it this way. We are to delight not in the ways of the world, but rather in the Word of God. We are, to put it again, We are to delight not in the ways of the world, but in the Word of God. Friend, you promote your own happiness and the happiness of your fellow church members as you yourself give yourself again and again and again every day to drawing your deepest joy from what God has said and done in His Scripture. Now, all of this is given to us in a picture. That picture is of a tree. Now, you may have seen one or two of those today. We don't have many around here. But 
The image is actually immensely helpful to us. Psalms is a book of poetry, and I don't know about you, but I don't really care for poetry much. It takes too much work. Poetry doesn't just say what it says straight out in the way uh, the epistles, for example, the letters in the New Testament do. However, God has so designed His Scripture that it tells us different things in different ways that all of us in all areas of our lives might be spoken to by His Word. And the way poetry works is it requires thoughtfulness. Many times we want to read the Bible as though we are microwaves, when in fact, reading the Bible requires crockpots. You see, you can't simply breeze through poetry and have grasped it. It is more of a slow cook, if you will. And so let's consider today what this picture of the tree means. Now, being desert rats, we appreciate uh, the beauty of a strong, vibrant, healthy tree in the middle of the desert. And thereby, we have an advantage over much of the rest of the United States, where things are green the majority of the time. You see, this psalm very likely was written in the city of Jerusalem. And outside Jerusalem is a terrain extremely similar to what's outside the valley. There is death and death and more death. And yet every now and then, in the middle of a barren, harsh landscape, you can come across a patch of trees. Trees that are strong, trees that have nourishment, trees that may in fact bear fruit and continue for a long, long time. What are you coming across when that happens? You're coming across water. The picture for us couldn't be more simple. God is saying a thriving life in hard country is just like a tree in rugged desert. When you think of that image of a tree that's thriving in the middle of a dense desert and it's budding, it's producing shade, it's captivating, it's stable. Is that an accurate description of your own life? Do you find God's Word has produced a kind of person that irrespective of the storms of life, how hard things may blow against you, you don't get knocked over? Have you found that there is a wellspring of God's Word through which your nourishment continually comes? And have you found that in God's way, in season, you're bearing a fruit, the fruit of a changed character, the fruit of a Christ-likeness, the fruit of disciple-making? Or are you more like a twig that has been removed from the tree and can be brittily broke with just the tiniest amount of pressure? Friends, God's desire for you and for me is that through His Word, 
we would be happy people. We would be stable, nourished, and strong. We would be like a tree. So in our remaining time together this morning, I just want to consider together with you those three analogies, those three representations of the tree that we are given in this passage. We're shown that the tree is stable. We're shown that the tree is nourished. And we're shown that the tree is fruitful. Let's consider the first one together, stability. Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve into sin so long ago, the world has been a chaotic place. You know that. You don't need the preacher to tell you that. We all experience the chaos of the world. And in many ways, it seems as though that chaos is spinning faster and faster and faster the longer time goes. And in the middle of this chaos, sin promises us pleasure. And many times, frankly, momentarily, it gives it. But it never lasts. And so what follows a rejection of God's Word, a a sinfulness, is momentary pleasure, but then a defeatedness that leads to more, in fact, chaos. And the cycle just repeats itself over and over and over. But happy people are people who have learned to delight in God's Word, who have learned to think often, frequently, like a crock pot, who have dwelled long on the Word of God. And God's Word produces stable people. Truly happy people are always stable people. We live in an educational setting, and sociologists, politicians, even the mainstream media are all surprised, particularly in the last few years, at the rate at which change is happening. And the sense we have as a society of the increasing amount of chaos. People get elected that we never, ever would have elected in the past. Governments get toppled by Twitter. Minor mistakes you may have made in your past that only those close to you would have known about can in an instant through one angry person get shouted to the world on Facebook. Men that some of us grew up watching on TV, looking at as admirable, showing what a household family full of ethics and morals look like, turn out to be horrendous sexual predators. Just a year or two ago, if you would read or watch the news, you'd find yourself saddened by what you see. Because, in fact, the news pushes to us the most awful things that happen all over the world. But today... Things are so chaotic that we're saddened when we read the news because we don't even know if what we're reading is true. Friends, are you tired of chaos? Are you tired of getting beat up by life? Are you tired of feeling like your soul is in fact on a constant fault line where you never know what's going to rattle you next? 
And if so, what you need is biblical happiness. And biblical happiness comes through the careful delighting and meditating on God's Word. Someone offers the fantastic assurance of internal stability, of strength, strength that can weather any storm, not in such a way that it doesn't hurt, that it's not painful, that you're not swayed a bit by the wind, but in the end, you do not break because there is an enduring happiness that is present irrespective of circumstance. That can only come from God. And God speaks today through His Word. If you'll draw up the life of God through the streams of the Scriptures, you will in fact be increasingly stable. The second thing this text shows us is the picture of the tree having a constant source of nourishment. Did you know that the average human being can go 21 to 30 days without food? I didn't say 21 to 30 minutes, by the way. That was a joke. Thank you, Alana. Water, though, is a different story. Think not in weeks, but rather in hours. The average person can survive no more than 100 hours without water. You know what that means? That means all of us are always only 100 hours from death. How's that for encouragement this morning? But think about that. Our bodies are of such a nature that we need an outside source of fluid. So much so that we can only go a maximum of 100 hours without taking more and more and more in. Imagine that time is even less for those of us who are crazy enough to live here but friends, if that's true of us physically, how much more is that true of us spiritually? If our physical frailty is only 100 hours, how much more is our spiritual frailty? What would happen if you began to think of taking in what God says and allowing it to sustain you? in the way that you think about breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Or even better, in the way you think about taking in fluids. That there was an awareness of a thirst for God, commensurate to the parched tongue that we feel when it's been a few minutes without water. Brothers and sisters, understand what's available to you in the Scriptures. There is an endless source of nourishment for your soul. Now, it's true, of course, that some passages are more difficult than others, that we have to slow down, that the 
text doesn't yield itself easily at times. If you've been living on cotton candy, then vegetables and fruit don't taste very good. In some ways, the Scriptures are an acquired taste, but yet when we begin to take it in, asking God to help us, going to brothers and sisters and connecting together around the Word of God, then we will increasingly find an appetite for what is healthy. We will increasingly be nourished by the Word of God. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ, if you have not repented of sin and believed in Him, then the central thing the Word of God instructs you to do is not, in fact, to pick up the Word of God and start reading it every day, but rather first to confess of your tremendous need for God, to ask Him to come and rescue you, to fill you with His life, to give you His righteousness. I had the privilege just a few days ago of sitting with somebody who did that for the very first time and watch as they were awakened to spiritual life. Friend, if you believe that Jesus came and died and rose again and you recognize your own sinfulness and you want Jesus to be, in fact, in charge, then He has, in fact, already been working in your life to bring you to that point. And won't you turn to Him this morning? And then, of course, we come, all of us, to the Word of God because we need not only God's Word to get saved, but we need God's Word to continue to grow up in God. You see, the gospel of God isn't just to get saved. The gospel of God is what sustains, what nourishes, what produces growth. And just like we need water endlessly, we need God's Word endlessly. The Scriptures promise that meditation and delight in what God says will provide you with all, all, all the sustenance you need. final thing this psalm shows us in terms of the image of the tree is a fruitfulness. Look at verse 3. I want to make sure this one is particularly clear. It says, he, meaning the person who's happy, the person who's delighted and meditated on God's word, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that get fat, sassy, Selfish and useless. Hopefully you're noticing that's not what your Bible says. Friends, it says that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Think of what a fruit tree does. It had no zero active part in where that seed ended up. But that seed is worked down into the ground, it's watered, and then it begins 
to grow because that's what's in its nature to do. Eventually it grows strong, its leaves come out, it provides us with that coveted shade, and then in season, a fruit tree bears fruit. It produces after its kind. We might say it makes disciples. And that's what Christians do. Not because we're better than anybody else, not because our mistakes have been less severe, not because we are, in fact, magnetic in personality or endless in resources, but rather because godly people produce after their kind. They bear fruit. A fruit tree absorbs water, and then it makes disciples. Christian, brother or sister, does that describe you? If not, then the source of what you need is not some new uh, evangelism training. You simply need to take in God's Word, finding yourself becoming increasingly happy in God. And then what naturally comes out is a supernatural love for people and a boldness and courage in sharing the gospel. Now this fruit, in terms of the fruitfulness of people, Scripture outlines what that fruit is in two ways. One is the fruit, and this is the primary way Scripture uses this image, the fruit of changed character. Now quit nudging your neighbor as though they need to change, and think about yourself for a minute. Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. On Wednesday night in the summers, uh, this summer, our children are learning about these pieces of the fruit of a character. I'm so glad about that. Does that describe you more than a year ago, two years ago, five years ago, ten years ago? Not because you're trying harder, but because God is producing after kind. There is a Christ-likeness displaying itself in increasing ways in your behavior because who you are is being changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. If so, friend, then the Word is doing that work. It's nourishing and stabilizing and bearing fruit in your life in that way. A second kind of fruit the Scripture speaks of is the fruit of good works, the fruit of an outward manifestation of a changed character. An example of this is in Titus 2. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. In other words, the, that other fruit, that other kind of fruit the Scriptures displays is the fruit of good works, the fruit of loving and serving and assisting and helping each other, and then loving and serving and assisting and helping the world with an evangelistic end. Do you find yourself more likely to devote yourself to good works than a year ago or two years ago 
or five years ago. I find it interesting that that text in Titus says this is something we have to be careful about. Why is that? Well, it's because everything else in life will feel more urgent, more pressing, more important until that first fruit, that fruit of the Spirit begins to really take hold. Much of what vies for our attention in the normal stuff of everyday life is in fact important, but is not urgent. What is urgent is being devoted to the good works that God has set out for each of us to do. Brother, sister, if you are saved, then just like God decided ahead of time that He was going to work in your life in such a way that you would be maturing and growing in Him, He also, Ephesians 2 says, as Tad taught us last Wednesday night, He also is set out ahead of time works that we could do. What a privilege to know that there are things the Lord has for us. So do you want to be changed personally? Do you want your life to count for something that lasts longer than you do? Then give yourself to delighting in God's Word. Give yourself to marinating, meditating, thinking deeply about what He has said. As you do, you will find yourself increasingly becoming a happy person. And happy people are fruitful people. Friend, you may have been told before to read the Bible. But have you noticed that God says to delight? To find joy in? to see it as a source of life. If you have not experientially found that to be your case in reading of the Scriptures, then I want to encourage you to ask another person if they would get together with you and read the Bible together. And you'll find experientially that as you learn more and more how to not come to the Bible with your own ideas and read them onto it, but in fact have the Bible read you and it become not simply words on a page, but a conversation with the God of the universe, that over time you will find more and more and more delighting in God's Word happening. This is how God works. He has designed not just us individually, but us as a church family, that God's Word would be what drives the life of the church. Not programs, not where we meet, not how big we are, not how much money we have, but God's Word producing a people and that people reflecting and increasing Christ-likeness. Where there is stability, nourishment, and fruitfulness. Christians, this is part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. We hear, and by God's grace, we obey. Now, I'd be remiss if we didn't look in closing at 
verses 5 and 6 again and speak a word of love to those in the room who may not have trusted Christ yet. If you look at verse 5, it says, The wicked will not stand in the day of judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Friend, if you have not repented and believed, if you wouldn't count yourself a Christian, if you haven't come to Christ, if He has not yet saved you, then Psalm 1 says you are like chaff. Chaff is that when you take harvest wheat, and in ancient times and in some cultures today that don't have automation, then the wheat is all thrown on the ground, it's trampled by animals, and then it's scooped up and thrown in the air. And the edible part, that part we like, can I get an oh yeah for bread and pasta? That falls to the ground, and then it's picked up and produced into food. But the chaff, as it's thrown into the air, is simply blown away. Why? It's worthless. It's good for nothing. The image is incredibly direct. Friend, do you want, when you die, and when judgment day comes, to stand before God and be able to stand in the righteousness, the right standing, in the stability that God has produced in you? Or will you find that you are just chaff? blown away. All of that hinges on not what you've done or haven't done, but rather on what Christ has done. And if you have embraced His good news. One commentator put it this way, He who goes with a multitude to do evil shall go with a multitude to suffer punishment. He who persistently walks and stands and sits with the ungodly, shall lie down with them in hopeless sorrow. Non-Christian friend, won't you avoid that most tragic end? How? Turn from sin. Confess belief in Christ. And you will, in fact, be planted by a stream. A stream in which you will have an endless supply of the love and grace and power of God that will grow you into a fruitful person better than you ever imagined. A person that will be marked by happiness. Let's pray. Before I lead us in a prayer, would you take a moment in quiet reflection and prayer as you ask God to apply this word to your own heart?
Father, we are, are so easily distracted. And our days and nights are so full. And Psalm 1 is not teaching us not to have jobs, not to have friends, not to invest in people who don't know Christ. It's not even telling us it's wrong to have a hobby. But it is telling us the only lasting source The only place through which we can become genuinely happy, blessed, contented people is by delighting in and meditating on what you say. Father, would you be about the work of growing us here at Church on Mill as brothers and sisters into those strong, nourished, fruitful trees And we know that that will happen, Father, as we draw life from your word. So we repent of a lack of listening and want to, today, commit ourselves afresh and anew to you and your word. We pray as we will leave in just a couple of minutes and go into a world in which there is such tremendous need for you, that God, our happiness in you would be infectious It would be obvious. It would, in fact, this week lead to opportunities to share Christ with others. Not because that's our natural personality trait, but because we are a blessed people. Because we are rested and drawing life from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.